Moveen, written and narrated by Roy Baldwin. Chapter 2 1866 at a coal tar distilling plant near Bursco. Slumbering quietly in his large sitting room, James Mackenzie could feel his eyes closing and the collection of heavy papers slipping slowly out of his grasp. He was so exhausted from the day's activity at his factory opposite and they finally slipped from his fingers onto the floor with a hefty rustle. The gaslight flame was beginning to flicker smokily again. At least, he pondered, they were so much better than the old oil lamps and the awful kerosene they used, but he began to think hard about what could improve the light even more. They needed something, but the flame heated up, which would then glow very brightly. That would do the trick. As a successful amateur scientist and business entrepreneur, it shouldn't be beyond his wit to invent something. Anyway, he was luckier than most in the nearby villages who couldn't afford gas even if they piped it into the houses. At least the streets were better lit, and crime at night had definitely gone down. Hargreaves, the local bobby, was less frantic than he used to be, he thought, laughing at the recent sight of his overweight friend, running down the street with his truncheon waving, trying to catch some petty pickpockets. It was definitely serendipity that after bumping into Lord Ottersburn in the George, they all agreed to jointly fund the setting up of a small gasworks in the town. In fact, being so near the canal was ideal, as the boat people could deliver endless cargoes of coal to keep the furnace fueled up constantly. That had given them the idea to convert those redundant cowsheds and stables at the other end of the yard into a coal tar manufacturing plant. As it was relatively easy for him to add orders in alongside the gasworks requirements, and with the canal running at the back of the estate, Jake Gibbons and his men could keep the yard well stacked up. One excellent byproduct of his entrepreneurial spirit was he could light all his own house up with gas lights for free as well as pipe additional gas into the town network for the benefit of the community, although that pumping station needed some improving. But those boat people could be a pain in the proverbial neck. At least, he mused, the Edwards family were mostly reliable, and Jim Edwards, head boatman of his prolific clan, could be depended upon to ensure reasonably regular loads, even though he forever complained of the cost of horse feeds and his low wages until it was suggested maybe he had fewer children, at which point he resorted in jest. What else is there to do at night stuck in a boat in Wigan? I could play the fiddle, get drunk, or fuck the wife. Well, one had to agree, after hearing the fiddle playing and then looking at his delectable buxom and red-haired young wife. James Mackenzie was enjoying his reminiscences and reveries, with a small scotch by his side and the coal fire burning as hot as Hades in the room. He really had to get Lucy to moderate her size of shovels. Suddenly, there was an almighty racket outside as the factory siren began whistling like the devil and a heavy clumping of feet and shouting could be heard running up the hallway, with Lucy screaming for them to get their boots off. The heavy oak door burst open and Jake rushed in followed by his deputy and a couple of workmen holding shovels 
their faces and clothes all covered in soot and filthy wet grime. Sir, sincere apologies for disturbing you. Please, you've got to come quickly. There's been a calamity in the plant. The new cylinder for producing nitrobenzyl has blown sky high. Joe Gregson got covered in acid and ran screaming out the back and dived into the canal. We fished him out with a large boat hook. But he's looking bad, sir. I don't think he's going to make it. Albert has shot off on one of the horses into town to get Dr Gill. But Gregson looks terrible. Burnt to hell. James Mackenzie shot up from his chair, grabbing his coat off the table. Jesus Christ, Jake, he shouted out in a rage. Some stupid fool has probably tipped in the nitrate of sodium far too quickly, which has reacted with the sulfuric acid to form nitrous fumes and nitric acid. I told you that reaction really generates some heat, and you have to go easy. Fuck it all, the whole reason for setting up that cylinder was to get us to produce our own nitrobenzol rather than buying it in to get the aniline. God damn it, that will set us back. I'm sorry sir, I take full responsibility. I was out having a smoke and the apprentice turned the screw handle the wrong way. I don't know how many times I told a thick idiot, we've got to have better training sir. I can't do it and look after all the plant as well. Don't worry, Jake. We'll have to sort it. Damnation, let's get over and see how Joe is. They were interrupted as Albert rushed in. He doffed his cap to James Mackenzie and then turned to Jake. Doctor's here, Jake. I've taken him yonder to shed. He needs bandages and stuff. Okay, thanks, James replied. Lucy, he shouted as his housekeeper ran in, petrified at the mess everywhere. Take a couple of these men to the basement and get that trunk with all that stuff I bought back from the Crimea. It's full of bandages and medicines. Let's go, Jake, and see what Gil can do. Does Gregson have a family? Yes, sir. Eight children, all under ten. One lad thirteen, and his wife with pleurisy. Hell's bells, come on! Slowly they carry Gregson bandaged up like a mummy and groaning in pain to the horse and trap to get him quickly to the local hospital. James handed some pound notes to Jake to ensure medical expenses were paid for presently. They had poured whiskey down his throat to deaden his senses, but even if he recovered, which was highly debatable, he would not work for a long time, if ever. James Mackenzie had already begun contemplating some sort of basic worker compensation scheme, to at least make sure families were fed if these things happened. They were working with highly dangerous processes, and this was the second serious accident in a month, although the last one, when one of the stokers tripped and fell into the coke bed, was his own fault for being too lazy, or more likely too drunk after three hours in the George to put the guarding up. James Mackenzie had always felt a social responsibility towards the local town and community, and definitely leaned politically towards Disraeli and the Conservatives presently in power. And he had contributed to Lord Ottersburn's committee to help draft up the next Reform Act, to give more rural working people the vote. He had no time for those mealy-mouthed spouting liberals under Gladstone, who worked against the sound principles of Conservatism, especially as business and industry now could be clearly seen to be changing the whole landscape of society and wealth distribution. 
He accepted he was privileged. Although the Mackenzies had earned their wealth through science and engineering applications since the mid-1600s, the aptitude amazingly passed on from generation to generation. His grandfather and father had been active developing steam engine manufacturing and doing their bit towards the growing industrialization that had shot ahead since the 1830s, especially with the canal being extended and the coal traffic moving from Yorkshire down to Liverpool, a port buzzing with new activity and wealth creation. But, unlike his father and grandfather, he was a scientist, a chemist indeed, down to his boots, and was committed to making his own family mark with a new industrial application in the plant. The accidental discovery of the first artificial dye made from coal tar by Perkins ten years back was an astoundingly important development for textiles. Whilst much progress had been made on the chemistry of the processes, which he had been studying assiduously since, and producing the violet dye and indigo from aniline, there was still much to do to effect decent commercialisation, and what a huge market would lay ahead for those at the forefront. This dye work was as big as the first steam engine, or the spinning jenny. James Mackenzie was determined to be at that forefront, and get seriously rich from the pickings. The accident was a definite setback. If only he could engineer some better processes. Word was returning from the hospital. As Lucy rushed in to tell the news, Gregson was burnt over 70% of his body with sulfuric acid and unlikely to live until daylight. His family were distraught. Mackenzie went down the yard to talk to Jay, who was gathered with other workers inside the plant mess area. Sir, I'm afraid it isn't looking good. Yes, I know, Jake. What we were pay what were we paying, Joe Gregson? I've decided to set up a compensation scheme which will come from investing some of our profits into a sort of new pension arrangement. My accountant is inside. He will be drawing it up. But Mr Mackenzie, Robert Thompson, the head stoker, interjected. Them down road in spinning factory, they get nout if someone's injured. We know risks. That's what we working men do. It goes with the job. You don't need to, James Mackenzie raised his arm and stopped the discussion. That idiot Turner over in the textiles factory isn't using his brains. The better protected and supported worker conditions become, then the more productive the output and more profits and wages for everyone. I really believe that principle and we must from today institute a better training system. Safety and safe processes will become our guiding mission. I don't want corners cut which will endanger lives any more, Thompson. I want you to head that up with your experience. Jake, the answer to my question, please. Jake shuffled on his stool. Individual wages were not high, and Gregson had been unskilled labour. I paid him three shillings and ninepence weekly, sir. That was a full six days and nine hours a day. Those of us skilled were paid more. OK, from tomorrow then. Assuming Gregson doesn't make it, his widow and family will continue to be paid half wages, reviewed in a year. So at least with that and the extra from poor allowance in the parish, those children will be kept fed and a roof over their heads. The men looked stunned at the generosity. 
but all felt a huge wave of gratitude to the boss. Mackenzie was different, and Jake thought if he gets the vote next year from the government, then he will vote for Mr Mackenzie to lead the town council. Thank you, Mr Mackenzie. I will see to it that injury pay is sorted first thing tomorrow. Gregson's oldest lad will be on the boats next year. The family have been cow people for generations, so money will start to come back in as well. But in the meantime, your scheme will be a great help for all of us if anything happens again. God willing, it won't. Jake turned to his deputy. What are we all hanging about for? We have a full night stoking to do. Let's get to it. James Mackenzie went back to the house. It had been a very long day, but a momentous one in many ways. Fatigue drew him to bed as he heard Lucy putting a hot water bottle under the covers. It was a cold night, and hopefully she will have lit a fire in there too. He was looking forward to the research work he had planned in his new basement laboratory in eight hours' time. Who else could dream about coal tar dye colours? except probably his beautiful laboratory assistant. Mackenzie was up even earlier than usual, his brain blowing steam like a leaky governor on a plethora of ideas to develop the business further. He'd had a strange dream and was inside a crowded railway carriage travelling across Europe to Vienna. His mind always saturated with music and he loved the waltz. He was in his pyjamas embarrassed as everyone around was dressed in fine clothes. A beautiful blonde Russian woman with bright blue eyes and her hair in a tight bun sidled up and sat alongside him, stirring non-stop into his eyes. She wore the most beautiful multicoloured silk gown, all greens, oranges and yellows, in intricate patterns. She began a conversation. Her name was Natalia, and she needed desperately to converse with someone about opera and dresses. She looked deeply into his eyes and sang an aria gently, the most beautiful voice he had ever heard, and it aroused him in all kinds of ways. Finally, under his dressing gown, she moved her hand and held his erection tightly. He was both petrified and mesmerised by her beauty and sensuality. He tells her she must follow her passion, seek her destiny and become a singer, and she smiles back saying she would never leave him again. Then in the seat opposite, three children sat down and smiled at them, accompanied by a good-looking man with dark brown hair and a large beard. The children were a spitting likeness of her, three girls under the age of puberty with the same piercing eyes and stare, and they were dressed identically in beautiful bright red long dresses and shiny expensive black boots. The man is staring at the children, then blankly out of the window, and then at her, then blankly again out of the window, his eyes transfixed into the distance as the train rattles along. He is trapped, unable to move between the beautiful woman and other people, crowded on all sides. The children all continue to stare back at him and smile, and she moves her hand under his dressing gown between his thighs, whilst the man continues to stir blankly, nonplussed, Obviously the father and her husband, and what is he to do? He had woken up in a sweat, bedding in disarray, but immediately felt inspired. His mind had unlocked on where to go next with his dying experiments in the laboratory. 
He was frustrated with only ever finding more variants of that perfidious mauve colour. Light violets, dark violets, green violets, even golden violets. He had indeed made much sound progress and written up four papers to present to the Manchester Chemical Society. And his correspondence with the chemist Hoffman, a strange man, but they got on well, who he had met in London last year, had proven apposite. Hoffman had hinted that working on some new reactions with aniline and dichromate of potassium and then leaching with a photographic fix, he had fleetingly come across new colours, possibly potential dyes, but had been struggling to replicate. That was the direction he and his laboratory assistant would need to go down to create proper greens, yellows and reds and orange with mordants which fix well and can be commercially developed in England. Those damn continentals, especially Germany, have been taking too much of a lead in dyes. England has and always will be the world leader in textiles. Of course, the dream. Then it came to him. His recent meeting at that quaint London party of Lord Ottersburn. My God, that man owned some impressive Georgian properties, though. He was introduced to those two textiles people, William Morris and Thomas Wardle who were collaborating on improving both dyeing techniques and paint and print patterns and had brought a small exhibition which everyone perused in the antechamber. Wardle was a silk dyer of some repute and a chemist too, but seemed to be obsessed with Indian silks and natural dyes. He racked his brains and his thoughts continued to assemble with a contented smile. When he had mentioned the researching of coal tar processes, not only for dyes but other industrial uses, they became very interested and he had politely accepted an invitation in the new year to one of their sessions in Leek of all places where Wardle had a dye works. A godforsaken part of the country to travel around at that time of year, he had put it out of his mind, especially with the pressure at home to get that damned cast iron retort made for distilling aniline. The other gentleman, Morris, was an interesting character a real creative jack-of-all-trades, not just a textiles designer, but had written and published poetry, painted, wrote fiction and even translated medieval texts. Morris was a charismatic dilettante, a huge intellectual full of amazing ideas. James Mackenzie felt a potential bond could develop with Morris as their breadth of artistic interests mutually matched. However, he believed Wardle displayed some hints of professional jealousy, and concerns of plagiarism, always far from his mind. But Wardle was gruff and forcefully obsessive about silk in India, neither of which was uppermost in his priorities. Nevertheless, he could clearly see that their collaboration had much potential to encourage innovation and growth in the textiles and dyes sector. But of course, then he realised, his dream. The woman must have been lurking at the back of his inner mind. Morris had been accompanied by his wife, a striking beauty, refined and astoundingly knowledgeable about pre-Raphaelite painting. She was hugely flirtatious and desirable, apparently a model as well. But somehow, although on the surface Jane and her husband appeared in love and devoted, there also seemed to be a cold distance between them, obvious by a need to talk constantly about the arts, deliberately unconnected with Morris's interests. 
Mackenzie pondered sadly for a moment and reflected on his status as a widower. Yes, he had all the luxury, goods and surroundings any man could wish for, but he was still lonely. His scientific work absorbed him, that was true. But it had been five years since Susanna had died from the pox, that stupid but admirable insistence to care for the dying in the Bursco sanatorium after that virulent outbreak in 61. Perhaps it was time to think again. Hmm. In fact, maybe he will travel to Leek after all. And he could take his beautiful and talented assistant with him as well. She would undoubtedly impress Wardle with her knowledge of dying processes. It was a shame that the rights of women and women's scientific education were so stunted in the country. Such a huge waste of talent and potential. He had also been taken with the brief conversation on that very issue that he had shared with Morris, who obviously had strong leanings to social equality and community well-being, akin to his own. Ottersburn was recommending him for a knighthood next year, so perhaps he could make it a double celebration with Morris and Lee and see again the intriguing and mesmerising Jane. He remembered the very violent argument he had last meeting with those ridiculously prejudiced and so-called senior scientists and elder statesmen at the Royal Society lecture, when some idiot was castigating women for debasing the natural tendencies of men in science by working in laboratories, how they must be expelled immediately from such inane and seditious thoughts and actions, because there was only one acceptable ambition for women, and that was marriage to home and children. What utter nonsense! But without doubt, if he had not personally schooled his female laboratory assistant from a young age in chemistry and mathematics, taking care of her education and well-being, she would well have ended up illiterate, with seven children and wasting her life away in one of those damn barges on the canal. She had shown talent and ability from an early age, from the moment, in fact, she was brought to the house, having been found by his boatman, abandoned on the canal edge near Ormskirk. Susanna was insistent that we should bring her up without hesitation. When Susanna died, she had been formally adopted immediately and the legalities could never be challenged again. Now she was almost 17, beautiful and totally absorbed intellectually and practically in the dying research and laboratory science. Indeed, he could not have continued his science work without her. But there was, of course, much more to it and Jake must never, ever know some secrets would have to be kept to the grave and beyond. He ruminated happily back to that moment when Harold, his head butler, brought her into the drawing room, all swaddled up in a purple-coloured thin blanket and a matching purple woolen shawl around her head, obviously newborn. Thank goodness it had been midsummer and the weather sunny and warm. Susanna and Lucy took charge immediately with the bottle and she grew strong and healthy quickly from that day and had remained so. Even now she enjoyed walking around with that shawl around her head, justifying the name he had chosen for her on the spot. It seemed appropriate then, inspired even, and his cousins Madeline and Eveline were also visiting, so the name even rhymed well. It was at that point, of course, that Movine emerged into the world, and had since been remarkably living up to her name. There was a loud knock on his bedroom door, and Harold Rimmer, head butler, 
entered with a silver tray and bacon and eggs for breakfast. Rimmer, thank you. Can you find Jake? I'm sure he must be down in the plant. I need to have a meeting with him in an hour to go through the new design of a distilling retort, which I have decided we will make to replace the old one wrecked in the disastrous accident yesterday. Of course, sir. I will fetch him right away. In the drawing room? Yes, please. And also, Mervine will likely be down in the laboratory already, too. I know she is working on a new dyeing process. I want to supervise the initial experimentation especially with that new glassware that had been made. I'm not sure it is as leak-proof as it should be. So I don't want her starting before I get down there. She can work on other things first. Yes, sir. I believe that she is still sleeping, actually, from what I heard Miss Lucy saying earlier. So shall we disturb her or let her sleep in today? No problem. I think occasionally she should indulge in some beauty sleep and rest. She's been quite frenetic in the laboratory till all hours during the week, obviously with new ideas in her head, so it will be good for her. Of course, sir. However, not all in the Mackenzie household was quite as straightforward as James had assumed. Having bunched up her blanket and sheets into a body-like shape to appear like she was still sleeping, as it was easy to fool Lucy much, much of the time, Mervine had sneaked out of the window, onto the roof of the orangery, clambering to the back and out to the stables. At such an early time, nobody was around to catch sight of her purple shawl, as she unbolted the door and sneaked in, picking up her long dress carefully from the mud in the entrance and gently patting Wilhelmina, her favourite white racing horse, chomping steadily on the great wedges of straw bales which had been thrown around her area. The horse suddenly raised her head and whinnied softly. Someone was approaching. As she turned around and giggled loudly to see Isaac creeping through the rear of the enclosure, skillfully dodging Ben, the black gelding, standing nearby. He walked towards her, furtively glancing through the window to make sure nobody was around, then held Mervine tightly in his arms. <clears throat> Isaac for Zachary, she cried, all laughing and giggly. You have such a funny name, and your breath is all steamy and warm as well. Your body feels warm under this dress too, he replied, laughing too as he moved his hands up and down her back and began to moan gently. Don't you think it's a bit early in the morning to be getting so passionate, is he? She, report, she retorted, holding his slim waist and noting he had put on his best breeches and waistcoat just to see it at the ungodly hour of 6am the sun having barely risen. But they had to choose their times and moments carefully. Undoubtedly, James, which he had always insisted since a child she called him, even though she knew she was his adopted daughter, would not approve. But there were times when a girl had to follow her heart, and her heart was pounding whenever she saw Izzy down in the gardens or working on the horses. Isaac Fazakley was a gardener for the Mackenzie family, and also was assigned to stable duty, as he had an almost mythical skill in being able to connect with horses by talking to them. He claimed it ran in his family, and his grandfather had been equally blessed with the same gift. But the rest of his family, who had drawn barges up and down the Leeds and Liverpool Canal for the last four generations, since the canal was first built and opened in 1773, 
did not approve of his move into the Mackenzie estate to be a gardener rather than a boatman as expected. The jealousy and venom had become so bad, his family had finally disowned him, apart from his younger brother Nathaniel, who he drank with occasionally in the Red Lion in Ormskirk. He had been so successful in bringing order and management to the stables, and cared so well for the horses, that James Mackenzie had gifted him Ben the Black Gelding, which he rode around the district whenever he had any free time. That wasn't much outside of Sunday, as he worked such long hours doing two jobs, but it kept him solvent, and he now rented a nice townhouse alone in Bursco down Victoria Street, but kept away from his other family members who lived at the other end of the street. Mervyn looked into Izzy's deep-set eyes. He was twenty-five, tall, slightly bashful, but with the most handsome face and body. Always he was chased by the local scrubbers in town and on the boats, but only had eyes for her. She adored his trendy new moustache and his flat brown cap, which when he wore his best hunting jacket and coat made him look so desirable she could eat him alive. And they talked endlessly, whenever they could, about science, especially biology and plants that he was fascinated with, and she had, over the last two years, taught him to read and write well. She was seventeen in a week's time, and old enough to do what she wanted. Many girls her own age, even some of her friends, were already engaged or married, and some had two or three children. She wanted to wait and study more with James, and maybe get into a university, but that was so hard for a woman chemist. But she loved Izzy deliriously, and he adored her, and she was confident, with her scientific knowledge of remedies, that she could stave off being pregnant if she wanted to. We don't have too long, Mavine. It's my shift this morning to muck out the stables later, and I have to attend to Wilhelmina's hooves and clean them out as she has a slight fungal infection. I know just the cure for that. Was reading up yesterday, is he? So I'll make up a tincture later when I get into the laboratory. I'm so excited because I'm sure that I've found a new chemical reaction to improve the colour range of the coal tar dyes James and I have been experimenting with. I have a flask sat in the corner, and he hasn't seen of a red crimson-like dye which I'm sure nobody has made yet. My calculations show it should be part of a family and could yield a range of other related colours of reds, golds, yellows. Isn't that exciting? And I tried the reagent out on both silk and wool, and it is holding fast. If the garments don't fade, and James and I can make the process commercial, it will make a lot of money for him, and maybe for me too. He held her closer, and whispered gently in her ear. And maybe, Miss Mervine, with the even funnier name than me, you would like to consider marrying me, so what do you say? Are you actually asking me, Izzy Fazakali? You have a very serious look on your face. Why are you trembling then? Afraid I'll say no? Of course I will. She shouted out, giggling loudly and ecstatic at the thought of being the only Mavine Fazakali in the world. Shush, she whispered loudly. Someone may hear us. Keep your voice down. I love you too, Miss Diehead, and... But he never got any further words out as she pulled his head close to hers, feeling his adorable tickly moustache against her lips, and they began to kiss passionately. 
This was the moment she had been calculating on. And throwing his cap into the hay, she moved her hands down to the buckle on his breeches, rubbing her hand against his obvious erection. Now, Izzy, let's celebrate properly. I want you so much and I can tell you want the same. They began kissing passionately and he slowly unbuttoned the front of her dress. She was bare underneath as he clasped her small breasts and pushed his mouth around her large pink nipples. She soon had his shirt undone. In a flurry of groans and anticipation, they were soon totally unclothed, naked together for the first time, began rolling over and over, laughing and joking in the soft, clean straw. Wilhelmina looked placidly on with Mavine, with, with Mavine thought, a definite grin across her jaws. But they had to be quick. There was not much time left. And once he had pulled her naked bottom into position and pushed her gorgeous white thighs apart, she guided him in deftly into her with a sharp intake of breath. It was her first time, but she had read some interesting old Chinese manuals secretly in James's library and worked out the most scientific way of arousing herself simultaneously. He came unsurprisingly quickly, but she felt an immense wave of pleasure too. She knew he had been with other women before, off the boats, but she didn't care about those slags because she loved him so much and he was now hers forever. They lay together and held each other close, her arms wrapped around his warm sweaty body with a horse blanket over them in the warm afterglow of their now anointed engagement. She only had half an hour left and he chatted animately about all kinds of silly harmless things that young couples do looking forward to sharing his lovely townhouse which he had furnished with an amazing design eye for a man. Their love had been secret and she had only one worry, how to break the news to James, although she had absolutely no intention of giving up her science and laboratory work. However, what neither of them knew was that someone else was aware of their affair, someone who had silently crept out and followed her to the barn. He had been peering in, unseen through a crack in the wooden wall, his trousers around his ankles, unable to contain himself at what he saw. But he was angry and bitter inside, with a mind in turmoil, his long-cherished dreams destroyed forever. Mavine was never again going to be his. He would act, and quickly. The commotion going on in the police house in Bursco was getting out of hand, as PC George Hargreaves banged his truncheon down hard on the desk and shouted for order. There was no way he was going to have Mayhem his patch. They could see from the look on Jake's face, standing quietly, white as a sheet at the back of the crowds of workers from Mackenzie's place, that something serious had gone on. The noise abated, and PC Hargreaves asked Jake to come forward to the front and speak. Slowly and methodically, he explained what he had found first thing that morning. Very quickly, PC Hargreaves realised this incident was beyond his pay grade and expertise, and quickly dialed for assistance on the telegraph to the county police headquarters. A reply came back swiftly from the chief constable that a senior detective was on his way, and to gather as much of the facts and evidence as he could. The following morning, PC Hargreaves... Jake and Inspector Thomas from Preston stood and watched in the stable as the male body was being cut down from the rafters. 
No human being could possibly have survived for long inside that vat of boiling dye. Nobody, Jake whispered to the two bobbies. Her body is beyond human recognition and gruesome to such a degree that no normal stomach will keep its contents down. What about her clothes? the inspector queried. Were any found? There may be some further evidence, but I'm not sure we need it now. We found them all neatly stacked up alongside the vat, all dyed mauve. They had been removed and dried off carefully in front of the oven. Her left hand had been hacked off first and placed on top. Good Lord above, the inspector exclaimed, his expression pained and his face reddening. Now I can see, Hargreaves, why you needed us immediately. But it looks like we may not need to delve any further. This man hanging, I understand he had been dallying about with the victim. What was his name again? Isaac Fazakali, Inspector, Hargreaves muttered, slowly, now wishing he had done more work first, as he could have got some credit for maybe solving it before HQ came into the case. Head stable hand and gardener for James Mackenzie, the owner of the house, and legal guardian of the woman in question. Yes, rumour has it that he had been sweet on her, and they were seen together a few times in the Red Lion, and riding the two horses which he looked after. However, I have it also on good evidence that the woman in question was, well, how can I say it, somewhat fancy-free with other lads in the town, especially the boatman. An inspector, we also found a horse with its throat cut, lying outside by the fence, and the other gelding, which belonged to Isaac Fazakali, a gift from the master of the house, James Mackenzie, has vanished. Set free, I wonder. And Mackenzie, can we rule him out, constable? Jake then intervened. I can confirm, inspector, that Mr Mackenzie Wood could not possibly have anything to do with this gruesome murder. He loved his adopted daughter very much. And in any case, he was with me and my men the whole time when it would have happened. We were in the plant for hours together, setting up a new distilling cylinder. I'm afraid Mr Mackenzie is in no state to make any statement, Inspector. We had to rush him to the hospital. On hearing the news, he collapsed with some sort of heart attack or seizure and has gone mute. He's being looked after intensively over there. Distilling? Are you making liquor here, man? Do you have authorisation from county? The inspector railed, as PC Hargreaves standing behind winked back at Jake. Uh, no, inspector, we distill coal tar to make dyes. This is our business here, and the victim was an important part of the work, a trainee chemist in the laboratory. So she knew the dangers of boiling vats. Couldn't have fallen in accidentally. Hardly likely, inspector. Given the height of the sides, she would have had to have been hauled up on a pulley. And this man Fazakali, is he one of those Fazakali boat people? They have quite a reputation in this county, never up to any good. I have half a dozen locked up in the county jail in Preston. Yes, Inspector, he was indeed, Hargreaves replied, almost gleefully, which Jake, who liked Isaac very much, was about to object to but after a look from his deputy, bit his tongue. Inspector Thomas became thoughtful for a few moments, then began. Well, gentlemen, I think we have now solved this crime. It's very clear that Isaac Fazakli, 
Perhaps having learned of her misdeed, Scott maniacally jealous and murdered her in a rage, a crime of passion, then suffered some sort of remorse and hanged himself immediately afterwards. All the evidence incontrovertibly stacks up. I'm instructing Constable Hargreaves that this case be closed forthwith, please. Odd name that woman had. Get the paperwork to my office by the end of next week and inform the coroner's court. And can someone do something about those local press officials over the other side of the gate there? They can now have their story. Good day, gentlemen. Hargreaves smirked and let the perspective off the premises. Jake just stood and shook his head as they bundled up the body of Isaac Fazakerly to be buried later. End of chapter 2